guys and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you for joining us for what is now episode number 153. As per usual, you are joined by your hosts, Tierra and Jack, and we have another Q&A today for you guys. Starting off with question number one, this one says, does the ripeness of fruit and veg alter its nutrition and overall calories? Boy, over three years of podcasting, and I actually don't know if we've ever been asked this question. Mm, It's certainly an interesting one. Yeah, it sure is. And I think anyone who eats fruit and vegetables, which hopefully all you guys out there do, you would notice that some fruits and some vegetables, they taste a little bit sweeter than others. And usually we associate that sweetness with how ripe that fruit or vegetable is. Yeah, either that or obviously some fruits and vegetables won't be as sweet as others. And that's often correlated with the sugar content, like fruit has more sugar than vegetables. But I guess you could also make the argument that technically all carbohydrates are sugars. (laughs) But we all know it's a little bit different when you bite into an onion compared to when you bite into a nice red apple. Mm. Yeah, well, the short answer of this question is yes. Like depending on how ripe a fruit is, it will actually alter the caloric value, but not not overly significantly. Like it's not enough to be like, okay, I'm only going to choose unripe bananas versus ripe bananas. But maybe surprisingly for some people, there is actually a difference between an unripe fruit, which has less calories compared to a ripe fruit, which has slightly more calories. Mm -hmm. And something that's actually quite interesting is there are two different types of fruit, two different categories. So we have these fruits called climacteric fruits, and we also have fruits called non-climacteric fruits. So what essentially that means is that a climacteric fruit is a type of fruit that once you pick it off the tree, it's actually going to continue to ripen despite it's no longer attached to a nice little branch. On the other hand, we have non-climacteric fruits where if you pick that thing a little bit too early, unfortunately, it's an end game. It's not going to continue to ripen. So a few examples of this, of a climacteric fruit would be something like a banana or an avocado, an apple, a peach, And I think a lot of people can relate to this and they understand that when you buy one of these sort of fruits at the supermarket, let's say that you bought yourself a green banana or a really hard avocado, you can trust that if you keep it on your kitchen bench for a few days, it's going to continue to ripen. That banana is going to start to get a little bit more yellow. And if you leave it for a little bit too long, it's going to start getting a few brown spots. And then your avocado, lo and behold, it's going to start getting a little bit soft. So that's a climacteric fruit, continues to ripen off the branch. On the other hand, if you are a little bit impatient and you're like, I just want to eat this now, then unfortunately, if you pick some things a little bit too soon, they will no longer continue to ripen. So an example of this would actually be strawberries. We know that before strawberries are nice and red and plump and juicy and sweet because they're ripe. If you pick them a little bit too early, They're quite small and they're green. And unfortunately, if if you remove them from their flowering plant, then they won't turn red. They will just remain green. So a few other examples of non-climacteric fruits would be things like raspberries. You've got grapes, cherries, lemons, quite a few different things there. So that's just a a little fun thing to know. But Jack, what, what is it about fruits and vegetables that 
you know, what actually makes them taste sweet and sometimes not so sweet. Yeah, well, as I alluded to before, it's mainly the sugar content. So essentially a fruit that is less ripe and often like we think about green bananas versus spotty bananas and green bananas will have a higher content of resistant starch and resistant starch is kind of grouped into that category of like a prebiotic. So along with uh, soluble fiber, in, insoluble fiber as well. And it's only partially digestible by the body, similar to other types of fiber as well. And it has around two calories per gram. So essentially when that fruit continues to ripen, that resistant starch is converted into more simpler forms of sugar. So from a polysaccharide to a mono and disaccharide, which is essentially what sugar is. And hence is why it tastes sweeter and why it also contains more calories, not because it's sugar, but because sugar has four calories per gram. Like the, I think people will automatically think, oh, sugar, that's why it's high calorie and sugar is bad. But no, sugar just happens to have four calories per gram. Mm -hmm. Resistant starch has around two. Yeah. And resistant starch is really unique. And it's interesting because it shares different qualities of both a carbohydrate, which we can obtain calories from, and also it shares qualities of dietary fiber. So normally our carbohydrates, they have alpha bonds in them. And when they go into our small intestine, we have this enzyme called amylase, which can break down the bonds within those alpha bonds or like the amylose and the amylopectin. But then it also has beta bonds. Now, dietary fiber, so the insoluble and the soluble varieties, they have beta bonds. And we actually don't have the enzymes as human beings to break down beta bonds. That's why we can't actually extract calories from dietary fiber in the small intestine. And that's why it actually passes into the large intestine. And the way we get calories from it there is that it's fermented by the bacteria in our large colon, and that can produce short chain fatty acids like butyrate, and we can get calories that way, kind of an alternative route. But resistant starch, it's interesting because it's like half and half. About 50% are alpha bonds, so that's why we can get about two calories from the resistant starch, but about 50% is beta bonds, so we can't actually extract the calories from the other half. That's why it actually, uh, is, is quite, it's like half and half. It's, it's quite interesting. It's like a carbohydrate, but it also shares those characteristics of dietary fiber too. Mm. I was reading up on this question uh, prior to the podcast and there was this uh, physics page on like wiki answers or something. And it's very interesting to hear people who aren't dietitians or nutritionists kind of explain the answer because they were, they actually said no, that the calories wouldn't change. And their reasoning was energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So like technically because the fruit is still a fruit, like the calories, I think they were thinking in per unit of actual energy, but not in terms of how the body digests and absorbs it. (laughs) Oh man, energy cannot be created or destroyed. I love how they pulled that one out. (laughs) Mm. Well, it's one of Newton's laws of physics. (laughs) I think. Yes, we think. We didn't actually study physics at university. No. No. (laughs) Yeah, anyway, quite an interesting answer. And uh, I'm sure some of you weren't aware of that. But next time you look at a green banana versus a spotty banana, uh, you'll know that the green one has more resistant starch. Mm -hmm. 
I guess it would we track it differently? No, like it's not significant enough to really worry about it. Mm-hmm. I don't really like green bananas though. Anyway, no, they exactly aren't all that sweet, are they? But interestingly, resistant starch it's not just in our fruits and vegetables, and uh, <laughs> it's funny. This is almost going back to that Newton law, but you can somewhat create more of it. You can't necessarily destroy it, I would say, but you can actually somehow in a roundabout way create more resistant starch. It's quite interesting. Well, technically resistant starch still has the same energy as mm-hmm. sugar, but it's just that we can't digest those beta bonds. Yeah, but it, it's pretty cool. So resistant starch, it's also in a lot of our grains. So things like your rice and your oats and your wheat, and you can actually create more resistant starch to actually be within those grains if you cook the grain and then you cool it down and then eat it hours following. Now, when I say cool it down, that doesn't mean that you just cook some rice and then you leave it out on the counter for a few hours so it cools down and then you can eat it and it's not boiling hot. You actually need to cool these things for upwards of 24 hours. So what that would look like is cooking up a big pot of rice, letting it cool, putting it in the fridge for one or two days, and then eating your rice. And really interestingly, with this actual method, you can increase the resistance starch within these foods by up to 2.5 times. So let's say that you had some rice, and originally if you just cooked it up normally and ate it, it might have around two grams worth of resistance starch. Then that means that if you cooled it down and kept it in the fridge for one or two days, what, two times 2.5? You let me know what that is. (laughs) What's that, five? I think so. If my mathletics brain gives me the correct answer. <laughs> mathletics, those were the days. All right, so there you go. You got five grams of resistance starch in this hypothetical situation, depending on how many grams of rice that you eat. But yeah, this is just an idea. So for example, people who do big batches of meal prep and you cook up a bunch of potatoes or sweet potatoes, rice, a bunch of pasta, you make quite a few things of overnight oats as well then in that case, you can be ending up with a little bit more resistant starch. And like we said, how resistant starch, it acts similarly to dietary fiber. So with a little bit more resistant starch, you are not only going to have a few less calories within your meal for the total number of grams, but also you're likely to feel a little bit more satiated. It might help with your blood glucose level control. And it's also going to add to the health of your gut microbiome too. So just a few little ideas there. But uh, yeah, I definitely prefer my bananas nice and yellow and ripe. And I, I've even heard of some people, Jack, they get amongst green banana flour. Yeah, I've heard of that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, very high in resistant starch, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can imagine the aftermath might be a little bit smelly. Mm. I'm just going to stick with cream of wheat, <laughs> not cream of green bananas. <laughs> mm. Hey guys, just a reminder that we offer coaching services, which you can find on our website by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians on Google or via the show notes below. We coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. Okay, so we're moving on to our second question of the day. Jack, this one says, if you're an intermediate lifter, but have never trained a body part, will you still get newbie gains? Yeah, so I think... Firstly, newbie gains is often touted as like some sort of evidence-based term when it's not. It's purely just like a bro term even. Like it's what people say when you first start the gym and 
you get a rapid onset of, of muscle and performance gain because you're new to that. And you're an absolute noob. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah, if we look at it in the same terminology, if you've never trained a muscle group before and you're an intermediate lifter, even an advanced lifter, sure, you're going to get newbie gains, which I guess is just the a fairly more rapid onset of muscle gain than you might otherwise experience in a more trained area. And it's not just about like whether you've trained a muscle group or not. Like let's say, let's say someone has been training for five years or six years and they've just always been at maintenance. Then as soon as they put themselves into a surplus, they'll probably get newbie gains again as well. Same with training as well. If someone's trained every body part equally, but they have a very poor training intensity, they don't really execute the movements very well. As soon as they start doing everything correctly, they're probably going to get newbie gains because like that's just a more rapid onset of progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's not necessarily the total amount of hours that you've just spent inside a gym. It's how efficient and productively you've used your time while you've been in there. Mm. Yeah, so taking let's say uh, a body part that you haven't trained very often and you're an intermediate lifter so the chest so if you start training the chest um, with good intensity and uh, adequate amount of volume and good execution then i don't see why you wouldn't get much more rapid onset of muscle in the chest compared to something like your quads which you've been training for a lot longer Mm -hmm. and what i'm even thinking is that potentially because you start off from a lower baseline so let's say that this is an example where someone has never directly trained their chest and then they're like i just want to grow a massive shelf so they might start off with just bench pressing the bar and we know that strength it's a combination of yes building more muscle mass but especially in those early stages it's about those neurological adaptations that you gain particularly when the movement is quite complex, like a bench press, which does require quite a bit of skill and balance and just becoming more proficient and confident with that movement pattern compared to something like a leg extension where you kind of just sit down and you go. There's quite a few elements to it. But because you're starting off from a lower baseline, you're just bench pressing the bar and you've never directly trained your chest, boy, the amount of weight that you should be able to continue to add to that bar should be quite rapid if you really commit to it. So let's let's say, Jack, in the first year of training, someone starts just lifting the bar on their bench. What would realistically they be able to get up to? Let's say this is a guy. Probably, yeah, between 60 and 80 kilos. Mm. If Yeah, I would say 70, 80. Amazing. So you're lifting about three to four times as much as you initially started with within that just first year. But like we said, that is a huge combination of neurologically adapting and also it's just a new stimulus for that muscle group and just becoming a lot more confident and proficient with that movement pattern. Hopefully you're in a calorie surplus too. But is that realistic to keep doing that year after year after year? Could we keep quadrupling our bench press? Mm, No, unlikely, unless you're like Larry Wheels or something. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, the um, I think by that point, like you've hopefully fairly gotten close to that maximal skill acquisition in that movement, or you've accomplished like the the first 60, 70, 80% of that skill acquisition. And then the last 20% is more so fine tuning over many, many years. And also like we know that combined with that is going to come that rapid onset of muscularity. And that combined is going to equal 
a lot of their most rapid strength gain in that movement. Mm. And what do you think the reason is then that people, they'll reach that 80 kilograms for their bench, but then, you know, the progression start getting slower and slower and slower. Maybe every single month they're only able to add on an extra 2.5 or 5 kilograms when they are nailing every single variable. Well, for the reasons I just stated, they've they've reached a peak in terms of skill acquisition or like it's kind of the easiest road. Like they've traveled the easiest road and then now they've got to go to a harder road and what is that going to take? Maybe that's where they need to get a strength coach or a coach to further refine their uh, skill in that movement. Maybe they haven't maximized other areas of their uh, lifestyle. Like maybe they're getting poor sleep or maybe they're not in a calorie surplus. And also the muscle gain is slower as well. And we know that muscle gain or hypertrophy contributes to, to strength as well as the skill. So mm, that's it's what very I was, multifaceted. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well. As we know that a huge contributor to building more muscle mass is actually being able to get strong for reps. And ultimately it's that mechanical tension. So if you are going like super duper rapidly and then that's slowly slowing down, we know for especially a lot of these big pressing movements like Example, a dumbbell shoulder press. You reach a certain point where your strength that following on from that, you might only be adding on a few kilograms to those dumbbells per year at most if you are consistent with your dumbbell shoulder press. It's it's tough. And the same would go for a lot of people's bench as well. It's really those small little progressions. But at the same time, that's what actually makes it feel so darn good because when you have basically been lifting the same weight and then finally you can add that extra 2.5 kilograms or whatever it may be, it feels really good and really rewarding compared to something like a leg press where you're probably going up at a much more rapid rate. Yeah, definitely. And ultimately, I think we can sum this up by saying newbie gains are multifactorial. So let's say you're doing 80% of everything to the best of your ability if you then go up to 100% there are some more newbie gains for you. And that might be something as simple, not really as simple, but going from five hours of sleep a night to eight or nine hours of sleep a night. Mm -hmm. Or finally consistently being in a caloric surplus or being more strategic with your nutrition, where you made that really good point in programming, man. Programming, Mm -hmm. it pays a world of difference. Just how are you actually structuring your program and how many workouts are you doing per week? Within those training sessions, what is the exercise order? How many sets are you actually doing per exercise? Are you actually tracking your training? There's so many different variables at play. And that's why it's really good if you can just get someone that you trust (laughs) to uh, have a second look over your program. And sometimes it can be staring you right in the face. Yeah, really can. And I think often people are restricted by their lifestyle. Not everyone can maximize every variable at Mm. once. It's quite difficult to do. And... Yeah, that might be what separates like, I guess, full-time bodybuilders versus people who who aren't able to commit everything to it. Mm -hmm. But that's, again, why it comes down to really nailing the basics and focusing on the fundamentals. So if you've only got a certain amount of time per week that you can dedicate to the gym, it's probably in your best interest to be doing exercises that you know you can get a lot of bang for your buck for rather than going into the gym and spending a lot of time on things that, yes, they're still beneficial, but like I would encourage people to be going into the gym and doing more multi-joint exercises rather than just going in there and just doing lateral raises and calves. Yeah, and that's where that threshold of knowledge is going to be 
incredibly important because mm-hmm. sometimes it's not lack of trying it's more lack of knowledge or lack of implementation mm-hmm. yes hey guys just a reminder that we post regular informative content on both our instagram and youtube channel so make sure to go over to those platforms and search the bodybuilding dietitians see you there okay well we're going to move on to another question it says is body recomposition a thing can you build muscle and lose fat at the same time yeah, so we chose to answer this because we've gotten it asked. Well, we received this question a lot in sometimes different formats. Like another one, another one of my clients asked this today um, over WhatsApp, and uh, we also received the question like opinions on main gaining uh, for bodybuilders in the improvement season. Like, is main gaining okay, or should you dedicate time to to building and then cutting and then repeat? So yes, like we've done a number of posts on this as well on Instagram, but body recomposition is entirely possible like it's just a very very inefficient means of building muscle or losing fat so if your goal is to build muscle it's just so much more efficient to be in a calorie surplus and gain some body weight if your goal is to lose fat it's much more convenient to be in a calorie deficit and lose weight Mm -hmm. so yeah like it's, it's quite a simple answer and it's tough to say like okay if you do stay at maintenance and go for body recomp um, how much are you going to be able to accomplish? And it, does, it depends on a number of variables. Like if you're more experienced in the gym, uh, you'll be able to gain less muscle and, and lose less fat at maintenance. If you're less experienced or if you're quite overweight or if you're coming back from an injury, all of those variables are, of course, if you're on special subs, uh, you'll be much better off in terms of uh, your ability to gain muscle and lose fat at maintenance. But for the vast majority of people, if they come to us and say, hey, I want, I really want to build muscle, then more likely than not, they're going to be in a calorie surplus. Yeah, it's highly unlikely we'll spend two months of their coaching just at a maintenance calorie level. We, we need to see body weight fluctuating somewhat. Mm. Yeah, so to spell it out quite, quite clearly, like uh, energy deficit, not great for muscle growth, quite good for fat loss maintenance (laughs) heard it on the grapevine (laughs) works (laughs) maintenance is fairly average for both uh it's probably more favorable for muscle growth than it is for fat loss i would Mm. say Mm. and in terms of a calorie surplus obviously it's not that great for fat loss in fact it's it's very 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 difficult to lose fat in a calorie surplus (laughs) unless you're like a considerable newbie to training and you have very supreme genetics yeah but it is quite good for, or very good for, for gaining muscle if you have those other variables down pat, like your training and your sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say with working with a client, the only times that I would generally implement purposefully a maintenance phase, and of course, you don't want to just have anyone at a standstill. You'd still hope that something's going on behind the scenes. So what I would recommend doing is that if you get a client and they have a decent body composition, you know, they don't have an obsessive amount of body fat, but it's also clear that they don't need to lose body fat either, but they are relatively new to training or at least new to your style of training in the gym. And also you're trying to work out like, what is this person's maintenance calories? That's when I think it's totally viable to actually spend a few weeks just getting someone accustomed to a new training program and also figuring out what their maintenance calories are so that then that gives you a really good indication of, okay, where can we go from here? Should we now go into a surplus or should we now go into a deficit? Or 
I think there's merit in maintenance phases too. If you are just in a pre-prep phase, you don't want to be going straight from a calorie surplus straight into a calorie deficit right before your comp prep. It'd be nice to spend a few weeks at maintenance, I'd say. Or if someone has just ended a prolonged dieting period, but they weren't comp lean and they actually achieved their body composition goal, then you don't need to throw them straight back into a surplus. They might just be happy where they are. So then you just maintain there. Yeah, totally. And I think often when people say, oh, is main gaining a, a valid form? Like either they, they might also mean like, okay, four weeks at maintenance, which is much more acceptable. And there are periods where even for myself, like I've either intentionally or unintentionally been at maintenance for maybe like two to four weeks. Mm. And I do notice that my physique tightens up a little bit. I even drop a little bit of body fat. And sure, that's that's not necessarily because I have truly dropped body fat. It might, al- might also just be because I'm adjusting to that new body weight mm. um, and like fluid retention is lowering, etc. Um, could even be as simple like it's been a super hot week. It's getting colder now, often look a bit leaner when it's a slightly cooler environment. Exactly. It's nice to solidify a weight rather than just jumping into new territory than jumping right out. You actually want to be able to solidify it for sure. But I personally wouldn't recommend that anyone gets married to a certain body weight. Like I would always keep body composition as the primary goal. Some people do get very heavily invested in just focusing on a very specific number. They tie their identity to that number. They are like, I am 60 kilograms and I will not fluctuate above or below. Like you're missing the forest for the trees, I'd say in that circumstance. And again, that's when you really do need to have that sort of conversation with clients in terms of like body weight. Yeah, it's important to monitor it, but you know, there's a hell of a lot more pieces to this puzzle than just solely relying on that number. And unfortunately in the long term, if you do just identify with, I am solely just this body weight for the rest of my life, you probably, not even probably, you will hold yourself back from what you can achieve with health and fitness and building more muscle mass. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. We received inquiries in the past where someone says, okay, I wanna reach X body weight, whether it's above or below their current body weight. And sometimes it's gaining weight very rapidly. Sometimes it's losing weight very rapidly. And often there is that emotional attachment to a body weight when there doesn't need to be. And just because they were that body weight in the past doesn't mean they have to be there again, especially when they're, especially if they're basing it off aesthetics or their appearance. And I kind of mean that objectively in the sense of, of physique sports, like it doesn't mean they they can't look the same at a different body weight or better at a different body weight. Yeah, that's why it's really beneficial to actually have a physique coach who's actually going to pay a good amount of attention to what do you actually look like? Because I've worked with a number of women before who, you know, they've actually tied their identity or they've they have this goal of wanting to get back down to a body weight that they were when they were like in high school or very, very early university but they've been training for the past 10 years. But they, they kind of remember that they're like, oh, I felt really good back when I was 21 and I was 58 kilograms. But I'm like, well, you've been training in the gym now for 10 years. Like we would hope not all of that sweet time has gone to waste and all of that effort and investment. We know that muscle mass, it's a tissue. It has to weigh something. 
So what if you were 61 kilograms, but looked even better and you felt even better too. So it's really about not tying yourself to that specific number. You really want to be focusing on one, how you feel your health status and also how you look and wherever that number lands. So be it, man. Mm. And I guess some people would even say it's not as much about how you look. <laughs> Depends which podcast you listen to. Confidence is a feeling before it becomes a look. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd say when you and I are on stage, it kind of matters what we look like. <laughs> mm, it does, yeah. <laughs> well, that uh, certainly answers that question. I think we can round off this episode with uh, something that we learned this week. Okay, well, mine is a little bit quick, but I actually learned something from the Dr. Carl podcast one of those podcasts that jack and i both love listening to on triple j but it turns out that when you are born as a baby you have all of the elastin in your body that you will have for the rest of your life so you can't actually continue to apparently grow new elastin as as you age and we know that obviously elastin it plays a huge role in our skin and the wrinkles in our skin and just basically the, like the complexion of our skin so uh, it's quite interesting basically you, can you lose elastin though can you lose elastin well i think it, it it's a type of protein so, so it degrades it throughout throughout life and that's why so you can't like get an elastin injection oh i don't know we'd have to call a plastic surgeon hey can i get an elastin injection wouldn't be surprised man they can do a hell of a lot of things they can take fat from your forehead and put it down into your butt these days so Mm. who knows they can probably shoot some elastin up there somewhere under your eyelids but either way you're actually born with all of the elastin and i think the same goes for all of the eggs within your ovaries are actually you're born with that interesting interesting you know from things dr carl knows from day one it's what you got baby well jack what did you learn this week well yeah i'm literally lost for what i learned but the last uh six hours or so i've been trying to deal with the new nbn for the house and i learned that the nbn modem when for whatever reason if the internet goes off then the nbn has like a 4g internet connection as well so that means it still stays on which is neat which uh, might not mean much to some people but my head is full of nbn stuff at the moment (laughs) i think jack's actually trying to let out his frustration that we literally just had an optus dude here up on the roof or whatever the hell he was doing you know setting up a new modem or no he was in the living room but then jack the smart being that he is he's wanted to check hey does the internet work before this dude heads off well you would hope that everyone would do that (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> the things you think of and I don't. Uh, I was clearly distracted by my lunch, but the internet, it's not working. And the dude was like, well, I don't know, it's plugged in. So now you've been on the phone with Optus for like hours. Mm. Great ringtone, man. I was actually on for so long. I was on for an hour and a half without anyone picking up. And I was on for so long that the, the elevator music stopped. <laughs> <laughs> and now Jack's just sitting here with these headphones in his ears, but they're not actually playing any music anymore are they no which is good it means i've been able to listen to you oh beautiful fully attentive well guys thank you so much for tuning in if you did enjoy this episode please remember to take a screenshot post it to your instagram stories tag jack tag myself tag tbd and we'll catch you next week